Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 173. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we're looking at two movies based on the same novel. The first one I'm going to do is 1945 Scarlet Street starring Edward G. Robinson, Joan Bennett and Dan Durio. Then I'm going back to 1941 to look at the original version of that movie which is Jean Renoir's fantastic La Chienne starring Michel Simon. So I'm looking at two different versions of the movie, one um, affected by the production code, one not, and both of them are worth watching. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and the show will start. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old, and I have to like it. Now, you can leave feedback via MP3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U, which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates. This podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts, so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children, listen to it with your headphones on. How is everybody? Yes, we've all survived Halloween, except for those of us who haven't. And we didn't get any trick-or-treaters this year. Maybe we should have put the severed head back in the front window of the house. But for some reason we didn't. We didn't get any trick-or-treaters, which is a bit of a shame because um, it's, it's kind of nice to get that. And I know it's picking up a lot in Australia. And there are people, there are two schools of people. first one is... That's an American thing. We hate it. It shouldn't be happening. And the other one is, cool, kids get to dress up as monsters. And I'm kind of more in the kids get to dress up as monsters things. Anything that lets a child have a happy childhood, I am very much in favour of it. Um, Kids are are so vulnerable in our society. Anything that brings them joy, even if it's spooky and creepy and scary and all of that kind of stuff, I am definitely on board with. But unfortunately, we didn't get any, so we've got a refrigerator full of chocolate bars, which, of course, is a mixed blessing. As I said earlier, doing two movies this time, Scarlet Street and La Chienne, uh, both of which are interesting in their own ways, and I'm going to kind of spread outwards from the movies as well, because there are some great stories around the movies about people who were involved in the making of them, which are kind of almost to the point of being cooler than the movies themselves. And I kind of like it when I can jump down that rabbit hole of research and find weird and unusual things about the films to share with you on the podcast. Uh, so, we get, of course, as usual, I go to what I've been watching lately. And let me bring up one of the 87 windows I've got open on my browser and tell you the films I've been watching. Uh, I did re-watch something for the radio gig. Paul Serratore and I were doing it this time around again. And Paul and I decided we wanted to do a horror movie. So we went with It Follows, the very recent, I think 2014 horror movie uh, about a girl who gets infected with a curse which um, makes her followed by an invisible monster. Uh, we talked about that. We talked about it being a different kind of horror movie, one that's not all jump scares and torture porn, but is kind of slow and creeping and, and menacing rather than, boo, scary. Uh, and we had a bit of fun with it. It was a bit different for us because we normally do kind of action films and blokey films. So doing one where um, the protagonist is a girl 
and the movie is a horror movie was a little bit of a diversion for us not too bad paul and i've got a date to do specter when it comes out for the radio gig we've talked to each other and said yeah let's do specter so we're going to do that when it comes out i actually scored free tickets for it and this is going to sound a bit poncy but i apologize for that uh my financial advisor who takes care of my superannuation funds and other things got us free tickets to a gig to see Spectre at the Riverley in Camberwell, which is a slightly posh centre in the eastern suburbs. Uh, and there's going to be food and drinks later on, like munchies and drinks. So we're going to do that next month after Spectre comes out. So I'm going to enjoy the fuck out of that. And free tickets to a movie I want to see. I am always on board with it. So what have I been watching apart from that? Uh, let me see. Uh, I watched a AIP horror film from the early 1970s, which kind of slightly, in a weird way, tags on to exploitation, and it's Sugar Hill. It's about a woman who runs a nightclub and her boyfriend is beaten to death by some men, and so she goes to a voodoo lady and gets some zombies to help her take care of them. It's very 1970s AIP. It's a little bit of fun. Uh, I got it on Blu-ray very, very cheaply from the States, so I went with that because I've got a lingering love for the AIP movies of the 60s and the 1970s because they were a lot of the films that I saw when I was a, an early teenager when I was misspending my youth and wandering around at all times of day and night. Um, and I'd go to the cinema and the movies that they had in the cinemas in Australia at the time tended to be at the cheap end of things for the most part and so um, AIP was very big on that so I uh, hadn't seen Sugar Hill before and the zombies look really funky they've got kind of eyeballs that look like gold painted ping pong balls and it's not really all that scary but it's a little bit of fun and I didn't mind that so I um, picked up that and I don't regret buying it uh, then I saw El Dorado which is a kind of poor remake of Rio Bravo. It's got John Wayne and Robert Mitchum in it. And for a movie that was directed by Howard Hawks and stars John Wayne, Robert Mitchum and a very young James Kahn, it's a bit piss poor and ordinary, really. Um, you should never have remade Rio Bravo. He did it twice, El Dorado being one of the two times, and I forget the name of the other one. But don't remake your films. I mean, Bud Bedica never did that shit. Why the fuck should... Howard Hawks do it. Even if the studios are asking you to, don't do that shit. Just walk away from it, do something else, or retire to Palm Springs. But El Dorado missed opportunity to do an interesting film by basically copying an older one. Then I saw a modern western, which is, for my books, much better than El Dorado. Uh, I heard a lot of buzz about it, and I really wanted to see it. And it is Bone Tomahawk, which is very, very cool. It's got Patrick Wilson in it, Kurt Russell, um, Richard Jenkins is in it, um, a bunch of other people. And it's a story, and it's a kind of realistic Western up to a certain point. It's a story of some people in a town who go to rescue a woman, uh, one of the guy's wives, Patrick Wilson's character's wife, and another man who have been kidnapped by some troglodyte, inbred, cannibalistic Native Americans. And the movie kind of tries to keep to period authenticity right up to a point, and it has a kick-ass ending when they get involved with these kind of troglodyte cannibals. It's kind of very Italian cannibal movie influenced, as well as being kind of influenced by old westerns as well. It's a kind of 
mashup of genres, but it works for me. Kurt Russell's very good, and Patrick Wilson's very good in it. Uh, Matthew Fox is in it, and he's quite good. Richard Jenkins steals the show as the kind of Walter Brennan character of the piece, and I recommend it highly. Um, if you haven't seen Bone Tomahawk, don't go in there expecting kind of balls-to-the-wall action all the time. It's got a slow build, and it's more a character piece for the most part, and that actually works to help the film too, because when shit gets real, you care about the characters enough at that point to have what happens to them when the cannibals capture them really means something um, small budget film filmed um, in just north of Los Angeles uh, at an old ranch that they have there for movie making so it's not like a, out in Monument Valley or anything like that but yeah go see uh, Bone Tomahawk or get to Bone Tomahawk I, I like it and I recommend it then I went with another public domain movie and one of the movies I'm going to talk about Scarlet Street tonight is uh, in the public domain, and it is The Stranger, the most successful in its first release movie that Orson Welles ever directed, starring Edward Gene Robinson, Edward G. Robinson, I said Gene there for some reason, Edward G. Robinson, Loretta Young, and Orson Welles. Uh, it's the first movie about Nazis hiding in plain sight in America, uh, and it's not bad. I mean, it's here's the analogy I made when I was watching it this time. Orson Welles is a master of cinema. We all know that and we accept that. And this is very much a studio film. He wanted to prove a point that he could make a commercial studio film and he succeeded in that. And it's a bit like even... Just say you've got the best chef in the world. If that chef makes you a sandwich, it's going to be a really great sandwich, even though sandwiches are very prosaic kind of food. And this movie is very much like that. It's Orson Welles making a sandwich rather than a feast. And even though it is a, a kind of sandwich, it's still an interesting repast and it's memorable and it's the best one of those kind of things you're going to see. And that's kind of how I see The Stranger. I like it. I may well talk about it in a future podcast, though I keep saying that about a lot of films that I haven't fulfilled that promise yet. But uh, it's in the public domain, so you can download a copy of it guilt-free. And I recommend it. Uh, Robinson's very good. It was done a year after what the movie I'm going to talk about tonight, Scarlet Street. And it just shows the breadth that Edward G. Robinson had as a character actor. The two roles are incredibly different. Criss Cross, the character he plays in Scarlet Street, is totally different than Wilson, the um, Nazi hunter he plays in The Stranger, even though they were done a year apart and he looks very similar in both of them. He did have a great breath as an actor. Um, then I saw I was on a film noir kick after seeing Scarlet Street, and I saw Black Angel, a movie starring Dan Duryea, June Vincent, and Peter Lorre. It also has Broderick Crawford in it. Um, it's a film noir based on a Cornell Woolrich novel, and it's got a really nice twist in the tale. Uh, it's yeah, I'm not going to say too much about that because I may want to borrow that for the podcast as well. Uh, but I recommend it. I picked it up in a four-pack of um, film noirs, along with Scarlet Street and a couple of other ones. And, yeah, Black Angel kind of works. It's not big budget. It's not fancy. It's not um, over the top. But it's a good, honest little B-noir picture, which I kind of enjoyed. I've forgotten the twist. I'd seen it before, but I've forgotten the twist. As you do when you see so many films and there are so many twists. But uh, Black Angel is definitely one to recommend. Then I've got a movie that I would not recommend in, under any circumstances. 
and I saw it because I like one of the songs in it. And it's On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, which is a 1970 Barbara Streisand movie. Now, Sal gave me a lot of shit for watching a Barbara Streisand movie. It also had, has some good other actors in it. It's got Eve Montan in it, Simon Oakland's in it, Jack Nicholson in it, playing a kind of stepbrother to the Barbara Streisand character. And his role got cut the fuck in the movie. It's based on a quirky Broadway play. And it's about um, a woman who has ESP and has past lives who meets a psychiatrist played by Yves Montand who falls in love with one of her previous lives. And it's basically really fucked up. Um, I don't recommend seeing it at all. It's uh, got one good song in it, which is Come Back to Me, sung by Yves Montand, which is kind of supernaturally creepy directed by Vincenti Minnelli towards the end of his career and it's probably one of the worst movies that Minnelli made um, I'm not going to talk any more about it because I'm upset by it then I decided to go into a little bit of a Halloween kick and I saw Tales from the Hood which is a kind of black version of Tales from the Crypt um, three guys go in to rob a funeral home for some reason three gangsters uh, street thugs going to um, rob a funeral home and meet the funeral director, played by Clarence Williams III. And he starts telling them the stories, and then they go into flashback and, and start telling these kind of EC horror kind of stories. It's pretty good. I enjoyed it. It's from about 15, 20 years ago, and I hadn't seen it before, but it's a nice Halloween y kind of film. Um, some of the special effects are a bit ropey, and some of the horrors are pretty damn nasty. But. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a fuck side more than I did the Barbara Streisand movie. Uh, then I saw a movie called Twelve to the Moon, which is a Columbia movie from about 1959-1960, about the first trip to the moon, and um, it's got an international bunch of astronauts, some of whom argue with each other. They fly to the moon, they meet um, an alien intelligence there that you never get to see, who does weird things like freezing North America. And they come back again and um, everything ends up being okay. It's got some really weird shit in it, like the fact that the first trip to the moon with the 12 people, two of whom are women, take along some cats and some monkeys and and a dog, (laughs) as you do. It's kind of a Noah's Ark kind of thing. And these alien intelligence ask them to leave the cats because they like cats. Now, you've got to find that a bit quirky. It's got nobody much in it apart from... Two people, it has Tom Conway in it, uh, who was the brother of George Sanders. It's got Tom Conway in it, and it's also got an actor who later went on to do a lot of Eurospy movies, which are quite watchable, and that's Ken Clark, who started out in South Pacific playing one of the sailors in South Pacific, and his career never quite got to those heights again. Um, I don't particularly recommend that movie because it's really kind of weird and fucked up, but then I saw another couple of films which I can, can recommend. So I wanted to watch something kind of science fiction or horror for Halloween. So we watched Westworld, the original, with Yul Brynner, Richard Benjamin and James Brolin and, and holds up well. Uh, the technology, of course, doesn't hold up well. And I still find the idea of fucking robots kind of icky. But um, the action really works and the escalation works. Very early movie directed by Michael Crichton. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I would, I would visit Westworld except for the fact that the robots would revolt and try to shoot me because it looked like a cool place to go for a holiday right up until the point 
when Yul Brynner plugged James Brolin, and just after Snake bit him. But um, yeah, it kind of worked well. Sal hadn't seen it before, and she enjoyed it. Uh, the special effects still work with the acid thrown into Yul Brynner's face, and the, there's a really good fire stunt in there, which is quite interesting. But uh, yeah, so that's now being remade as a um, HBO miniseries with a lot more kind of adult content in it. So that's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Then I saw a really interesting Japanese movie from 1959, a genre film, a science fiction film, which had slipped past me. It's, uh, it was directed by Inoshiro Honda, and it's battling outer space, which kind of rocks. The special effects are very cool. The moon landing stuff is very cool. There's a battle on the moon with aliens and ray guns and all sorts of shit like that. It's not deep. It's not fantastic in... Well, it is fantastic in the classical sense of the word fantastic. But it really works. Um, it's it's kid-friendly, so if you wanted to get a kid to watch it, you could do that. But like I said, the special effects were pretty cool. Um, the aliens take over one of the astronauts, and he does some bad shit to some of the spaceships and all that kind of thing. But in general, it's got that beautiful special effects work that we know from um, Japanese genre films of the time, and... I really enjoyed it. There was nothing there that pissed me off or, or annoyed me. And right at the start, when you've got a space battle between a kind of rotating space platform that looks like a roulette wheel and a whole bunch of alien spaceships, it had me on board right from that point. Um, it's got a bullet train that crashes into a gorge after the aliens levitate the bridge it's going across. Uh, yeah, and uh, Battle in Outer Space is kind of cool, and it's one of those movies that takes you back to childhood and the kind of films that um, were available when I was a kid. And yes, I know I've had a few birthdays now. But uh, yeah, it gave me a lot more joy than the Star Wars trailer, for instance. But that's about all I've been watching. I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, I'm going to do these in reverse order for a very good reason. And I'm going to talk first about Scarlet Street, which, I, as I said, is in the public domain. So you can watch it before you listen to the rest of the podcast. Download it. I know that... Um, the Internet Archive has a, a reasonable copy of it. It's also on YouTube all over the place, so you can watch the film there, come back and listen to the rest of the podcast when I'm going to tell you some interesting things about Joan Bennett, one of the stars of the film, and the man who painted the paintings in Scarlet Street, a guy called John Decker who had a very interesting backstory. You know, nobody ever looked at me like that. Not even when I was young. Yes, when we're young, we have dreams that never pan out. But we go on dreaming. Why are you looking at me? Is my face dirty? It's beautiful. Since I'm old enough to be your father... I... You're not so old. You don't think so? Well, you're not a boy. You're just, uh, mature. I like mature people. Why don't you paint my picture? I'd like to. Johnny, don't talk like that. Well, it's the truth. I'm fed up with you. Johnny. That's the only thing you ever understood. I'm through with you. Jeepers, I love you, Johnny. You lied to me, Kitty. It was him, wasn't it? Why'd you come here? To ask you to marry me. What about your wife? I haven't any wife. That's finished. For cat's sake, My you husband don't... turned up. I'm free. 
Don't cry, Kitty. Please don't cry. <laughs> I'm not crying, you fool. I'm laughing. Kitty. <laughs> oh, you idiot. How can a man be so dumb? Kitty. <laughs> My wife, uh, I mean, my former wife is correct. I really can't paint. My copies were so bad, I had to destroy them. For God's sake, he's lying! Okay, so Scarlet Street was a Fritz-Lang-directed movie, very similar in some ways to the previous movie he made, Woman in the Window. It's got a lot of the same people in it. Woman in the Window also has Edward G. Robinson... Um, Joan Bennett and Dan Durier but this movie I like a lot more than I like um, Woman in the Window because of the simple fact that the ending on The Woman in the Window sucked and also this one's based on a lot more solid source the story is fairly simple uh, I'll see if I can find a nice little praise here that kind of gives away Okay, Christopher Cross, who was 25 years a cashier and has got a gold watch to show for it, little else. He's given the gold watch at a little celebration by his boss. And he's on his way home on that rainy night, he rescues the delectable Kitty from her abusive boyfriend, Johnny. Smitten, Chris lets Kitty thinks he's a wealthy artist. He just dabbles in painting on the weekends. At Johnny's urging, Kitty lets Chris establish her in an apartment using stolen money that Chris has stolen from his work and from his shrewish wife. And there, Chris paints his paintings, but Johnny sells them under Kitty's name. Uh, and it turns out he is a, a very good artist, and things turn but from bad to worse there. Which I explained really badly, and I apologise for that. Let me see if I can find a slightly better one here somewhere. Um, when a man in a midlife crisis befriends a young, befriends a young woman... Her venal fiancé persuades her to con him out of some of his, the fortune she thinks he has. That's probably a better way to do it. Now, the movie, as with La Chienne, is based on a novel by Georges Lafourcherie. I'm going to try that again. I'm having trouble with words today. The writer's name is Georges de la Fouchardière who wrote the original novel on which it was based. As I said earlier, it um, was also made as a Jean Renoir film in 1931, La Chienne. And Jean Renoir hated this film with a passion. When Scarlet Street came out, Renoir hated it because, it, in a sense, it is a watered-down version of his one. This is the better-regarded film because it's more accessible. The fact that it fell, for some reason, into the public domain after Universal made it, uh, may well have helped with that. And also, it's got a lot of the tropes and a lot of the kind of plot points that make a good film noir. You've got an um, innocent man in the sense of being unworldly, not necessarily criminally innocent, who falls into the clutches of a femme fatale, in this case Kitty, played by Joan Bennett, who was good in a number of other films as well. She was really good in Fritz Lang's Ministry of Fear with Ray Milland. Uh, even though her accent was a little bit ropey as a London girl. She had a really good way of playing bad women. Uh, intelligent actor. You can tell she's intelligent by the way she plays the role of Kitty. Uh, even though there is some over-the-top dialogue, some of which you heard in that trailer that I played. She really does give a plausibility to a amoral and lazy person. 
basically. And Kitty's very much that. She won't go out and work the way her she has a girlfriend that she confides in. Uh, she won't go out and work for a living. She'd rather kind of try to hustle and grift. And she's very much encouraged in that by her boyfriend, uh, Johnny, played by Dan Durier, an actor I've got a real like for. Um, I've talked about him in one or two other podcasts, and I like Dan Durier. I think he was um, he essayed pain very well. He was a he did have problems with alcohol himself, and he played drunks in a couple of films, Black Angel being one of them, very very well. And he played it in a kind of non-cliched way, in that he showed us the pain and the self-loathing that alcoholics have really, really well. He was as good in that as Ray Milan was in The Lost Weekend. In fact, um, I mentioned this before, and I apologise for repeating myself. He did it in an episode of Route 66 really, really, really well. A fine character actor who maybe didn't get the breaks he deserved. He was kind of seen as a second-rate Richard Widmark at the time when Richard Widmark was playing people like Tommy Udo in Kiss of Death. But I think Dan Durier, I like him as an actor. Even though in this one he's playing basically a man living off the earnings of his girlfriend. Almost a pimp, though. And here's where we come to the hard part of, of this film. The production code wouldn't let them straight out say what was implied in the film. And the implication, of course, is that Chris, the character played by Edward G. Robinson, who's um, a hand-pecked, brow-beaten man, is having an affair with Kitty. It's never actually at all even implied that there's a physical relationship between the two of them, even though he does try to kiss her at one stage. It's almost um, a weirdly asexual thing up to the point where he proposes marriage to her. Now, Chris's own marriage is an interesting thing in this film, and this is something that's played out even more interestingly in La Chienne. He married late in life to a woman who'd previously had another husband. In Scarlet Street, the woman is played by Rosalind Ivan, who had a small career in cinema playing exactly this kind of role. She's shrewish. She makes him do the dishes at night, even though he works all day during the daytime. She disparages him and compares him badly to her dead husband, who was a policeman, and there's a great big picture of the beefy bastard hanging on the wall of the apartment they live in. She disparages his Sunday hobby of painting. Sometimes he sits in the bathroom and paints flowers. Sometimes he does other things, and she's complaining about the fact that the hall is cluttered up with these paintings that Chris does. It's his only creative outlet, and his only escape from this life that he's living, which is kind of miserable. Works as a cashier for a large company. Comes home to a wife who, it's implied slightly, they don't have much of a physical relationship either. She kind of makes some implications about that. And there's a feminization of the Chris character as well. When he's talking to a friend who comes to visit, he puts on a woman's kitchen apron to do the dishes. And it's a kind of like a feminization of him. And it would have been seen at the time as an, emascul you know, an emasculating thing for him to do the dishes and to be dressed in a woman's kitchen apron. They didn't have many men's kitchen aprons, I suppose, at the time. But it's... um. It's an interesting approach to take of it and a none-too-subtle 
dig at the nature of his marriage. Um, I think it could have been played a little lighter than it was, but it was played very blatantly in there. Scarlet Street. Um, we, Chris is not an unsympathetic character, though. He does have a romantic nature. He's passionate about his art, but he's shy about mentioning it because he keeps getting so much shit about it from his wife. And basically, in a lot of ways, he's a passive person, but when he meets Kitty and becomes infatuated with her, he um, he kind of blossoms and becomes a bit more forthright. And even though he's being manipulated by both Kitty and Johnny, he it's a, it's a hard one to kind of judge because there's so much of this film that's got the balls cut off it by the production code and by the things that Lang wasn't able to say about the characters and about the nature of their relationships, even though it was kind of implied. The way it plays out because of that production code morality is that he's pretty stupid when it comes to relationships, and um, it's not a realistic kind of thing. He doesn't play... Robinson doesn't play the character that naively. Yeah, he is naive to a certain extent, and he is kind of unworldly in a lot of ways. He uh, didn't marry, as I said, till late, but he's... Yeah, it's, it's a, it's, there's something tonally off about it because of that kind of imposed restriction on the film. And I think that weakens the film to a certain extent. Uh, and, of course, in the film noir, the guy is always playing the sap to the woman in that sense. But in this one, it, it plays falsely. Robinson's character has to be played stupidly. He... The fact that he doesn't realise that the woman is playing him for a sap and is basically leeching money from him makes the character more stupid than it is. And that's one of the weaknesses of the production code in my book. Um, It really made... It crippled actors, it crippled directors, it crippled storytelling in order to kind of enforce a belief system. And and that's the biggest weakness in this film, is that. Now, it does have some strengths as well. Um, the photography is beautiful. The use of Melancholy Baby as a kind of theme through the movie is very good too, because it's a kind of maudlin, sentimental, sappy kind of song. And it suits the material very much. Um, there's Now, there are a couple of twists in there, and I'm going to talk about the twists. So if you don't want the spoilers... Go and watch the movies and then come back. Now, there's a twist too where Chris is walking down the street one day and meets a man. Well, I think he's in a bar. He meets a man with an eye patch, a fake eye patch, who turns out to be his wife's, Adele's, first husband, who has faked his own death falling in the river. He's decided that he he didn't want to be with Adele and he didn't want um, his life to be like that so he basically went away hopped a ship to South America for a while tooled around there and now he's back again and decides that he's going to blackmail Chris into so that he disappears again he wants to get some money off Chris so that he can disappear so Chris can stay with Adele and there's not that kind of bigamy thing but Chris doesn't want to be married to Adele of course he now is infatuated with Kitty so he has to try to play this blackmailing ex-husband who was put up as a paragon by his wife Adele and turns out to be a, a 
totally unsavory character in spite of that and decides to kind of play the two off against each other in an interesting way, which actually plays slightly better than it does in La Chienne. Though, kind of, yeah, I'll talk about that when I talk about La Chienne. But, um, yeah, so there's that twist in the plot as well. And then there's the twist of the fact that as Johnny and Kitty steal some of Chris's paintings and try to flog them off, first to an art art dealer, played by an interesting character actor called uh, Vladimir Sokolov, who you might remember played the old man in the village in The Magnificent Seven. Sokolov's character shows the paintings to an art dealer and the art dealer recognises the quality of them and that they are works of genuine merit. They're uh, in a naive style, but they're very um, genuinely good paintings and sells them for a lot of money. And then, of course, Johnny and Kitty decide that what they're going to do is pretend that Kitty painted the paintings. Um, none of Chris's paintings are signed, so she paints, she signs up with her own name and becomes a core celeb and a, a famous painter as a part of this, which is yet another way for Kitty and Johnny to rip off Chris. Uh, so there's another twist in the plot. Uh, Chris finds out about this, of course, and um, things go dreadfully wrong for everybody, and a murder takes place. Now, there's no there's no giveaway on the murder takes place. It's in the trailer. And again, spoiler alert, Chris stabs Kitty to death with an ice pick. As you do. Then, of course, um, and the interesting thing about this, too, is it's um, the first time under the production code that a murderer doesn't get caught by the police and captured and sent to jail or, or executed. That doesn't happen in this film. He does have punishment, of course, this being the production code and this being a Hollywood movie of the 1940s. There has to be punishment for evil doing. Even though Chris was manipulated by these people, the work of his life was stolen by them. They betrayed him. They fucked him over big time. They humiliated him. They did everything you could do to a man to drag him down to the mud. Of course, punishment he has to be punished for that moment of insane passion where he stabs her with an ice pick multiple times. And of course, he then um, is caught for stealing money from his work because he's been stealing money to try to keep Kitty's lifestyle going. Ends up being homeless and is at last found wandering a park in winter. A derelict um, who's considered insane by everybody. And he walks past an art gallery where his paintings are being sold for vast amounts of money. The end. Um, and it's, I think it's a cruel fate for Chris to have there. He, yes, of course, he does kill a woman, which is an act of sexual violence and is a, an act against women. And in Australia at the moment, there is a, a great big um, social push to publicise and to try to find a way to avoid that kind of violence against women by men. But in this movie, it's, there's a kind of judge, jury, and executioner approach to it, which um, is very much a part of the production code and does show that you have to tell a story a certain way for that story to be shown on film. Uh, it's, it's censorship, and amorality isn't even an option. You've got to have that kind of 
Christian punishment done to evildoers in all cases. It's not like the usual suspects when Kaiser Soze limps away. None of that is possible in a production code movie. It doesn't allow you to tell amoral stories. There's always got to be a moral comeuppance for the characters. And that's the bit that pisses me off. The fact that um, even though the original story has quite a nuanced ending, the genre noir film has a nuanced ending, and has moments of humour. This movie is played dead straight and serious and, and upright. There, there's no kind of shades of grey. There's no subtlety about it. There's no recognition that fate has fucked Christopher Cross thoroughly in this one. The way that there is in, say, a movie like Detour, where there's that full acknowledgement that fate's fucked him over. In this film... He has to be punished, and he's punished by having um, his artwork not recognised as being his. He's punished by being homeless, by being a derelict and alcoholic, and he's also punished by the fact that the comfortable, if restricting life he lived, is no longer an option for him. The movie um, is actually, it was made in 1945, but it's set in 19 in the early 1930s during the Depression, which um, I suppose emphasises the threat to his livelihood that Chris's actions represents. Uh, the Depression was a good time to be unemployed, of course. But that moralistic ending, it worked for me when I saw the film, because I saw this film before I saw it last year. And I thought, yeah, this is a good film noir. It's got the film noir thing. It's a part of production code um, Evil doing has to be punished in some way, and even though he doesn't get the legal cover up, there's quite a heavy price to pay for his actions in the film. But then we come to Jean Renoir's last year. Now, I like Jean Renoir's films. Each time I see another one of his uh, rules of the game, I've talked about on the podcast, for instance, every time I see another one of his films, uh, French Can Can, I like as well. I'm going to have to try to track down more of them. I get more respect for the guy as a filmmaker. He really does have uh, an interesting touch with things. And in his first sound movie, La Chienne, which even uh, predated Baudou Sanford Drowning, which also stars the star of the film, um, Michel Simon, it's a joyful film to watch. It's, uh, It's Scarlet Street, in a sense, done right. Now, there are two bits of scandal indirectly related to Scarlet Street, which are kind of film noir in their own ways. The first one relates to Joan Bennett, who in 1951 was involved in a scandal, not because directly of what she'd done, but because of what her husband did, which is kind of interesting. Now, at the time, Joan Bennett was 41. Uh, her, she, was, she had a good career as an actor. Her uh, agent was Jennings Lang, working for MCA. And she was having an affair with her agent. Uh, Her husband, Walter Wanger, uh, who was the producer of Scarlet Street, um, was drove by when um, her and Lang were talking. Lang was leaning on her car and uh, having a chat with her. Uh, And so her husband came up uh, on December 13th, 1951, walked up and shot... Jennings laying in the groin and blew one of his balls off. Uh, there was, of course, um, 
a lot of scandal to do with that, and it came out in court that they'd been having an affair. Um, of course, the affair ended at that time, and so did the marriage. But, um, yeah, there, there was a big fuss about it at the time. It wasn't uh, mentioned in the press particularly that um, Joan Bennett's husband blew one of her lover's balls off, but that's exactly what happened. The other interesting Scarlet Street-related um, scandal, in a sense, has to do with the artist who painted the paintings that Chris Cross ostensibly painted for the movie. Now, he was well-known in Hollywood. He's a guy by the name of John Decker who had a pencil moustache and hung around with a whole bunch... Of, there were a number of rat packs in Hollywood. And the first one was centred around the house of John Decker. There were people um, he uh, hung out with who were famous piss artists and, and degenerates of various kinds, all of whom were famous actors. Um, John Barrymore was a part of it. Errol Flynn was a part of it. Um, Anthony Quinn, John Carradine, a whole bunch of different actors. Thomas Mitchell, for one. In fact, um, Thomas Mitchell was sold a fake Rembrandt by John Decker. Uh, John Decker's history was really interesting because in World War One. He was an enemy alien um, living in England. Uh, and he was actually born in Berlin in um, 1895. But what he was doing was painting fake paintings that were getting sent back to um, Germany with coded messages under the canvas. He then became an enemy alien and was um, interned on the Isle of Man for the duration of the war. He emigrated to America in 1921, worked as a cartoonist until 1928 when he came to Hollywood. And he was a very fine artist. He was a, one of the great art forgers of the time uh, and a, an original artist as well. He specialised in doing caricatures of famous movie stars once he got established in Hollywood in the 1930s. He did a Renaissance painting of William Powell, for instance, um, he did a very good portrait of Errol Flynn, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, he did a picture of Catherine Hepburn. He painted W.C. Fields as Queen Victoria in a caricature. And he did a caricature of um, Van Dyke's Blue Boy with Harpo Marx instead of the Blue Boy. So he, he was quite famous for that. Uh, and towards the end of his career, he died in 1947, not unrelated to alcohol. But in the 1940s, he did some serious artwork as well, which was considered to be very fine art. He um, did a really nice portrait of Anthony Quinn, for instance. He did a portrait of John Wayne, and he did some landscapes which were just starting to be considered really fine art. But uh, John Decker, the paintings he did for Scarlet Street are in a, a naive style, and one of the things... Chris Cross says about his artwork is he could never get perspective right, so they are in the naive style. And even though John Decker could paint in pretty much any style, the way a good art forger can, if you want a good um, illustration of that, you might want to take a look at Orson Welles' Ep for Fake, where he talks about Elmir de Hori, the famous 20th century art forger. But uh, that was John Decker, so even in the, this particular film noir, the very painter who painted the paintings of Christopher Cross was himself a scoundrel and a cad and an enemy alien during World War One, and a friend and confidant 
of a number of famous actors. In fact, one of the things he did was he did a fake Rembrandt and sold it to Thomas Mitchell. Um, they he did it really interestingly. They found an old seventeenth-century um, cupboard in an antique shop, and they he bought one of the drawers out of the cupboard, cut the wood out of the drawer, and painted the Rembrandt on that because then the wood would be authentic to the period. And it was um, an elm tree from Holland, so everything the provenance of the wool was right. And he aged it and faked it, and then sent it to Holland and had a um, Dutch art expert authenticated by passing him some bucks it came back as an original he sold it to thomas mitchell for two thousand dollars uh that painting ended up in harvard uh university in um on the east coast of america and only very recently have they realized that it wasn't actually an original rembrandt but a fake by john decker so there's some interesting stuff around uh, Scarlet Street. But anyway, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'm going to talk about, including another scandal, the 1931 iteration of this particular story, La Chienne, directed by Jean Renoir and starring the fantastic Michel Simon. Paris was made for lovers. Paris was made for lovers. Why else would Paris even be there? The little streets are charming The mademoiselle's disarming And there's the reason you'll find me there Paris was meant for lovers was made for romance Paris was made for romance Why else would songs be sung about her? Don't let the smile deceive you For if your love should leave you How lonely it would be without her was made for me and you Paris was made for me and you
Yes, I know I've played that track before on a podcast, but I love it. It's Michelle Legrand singing Paris is Made for Lovers. Now, there's two reasons that I've played that before talking about La Chienne. The first is that the character, the main character in the movie is Maurice Legrand, same surname as Michelle Legrand. And if I say Michelle rather than Maurice during this review, I apologise. The second one is it's very much got that Parisian feel about it, which this movie does as well. It was shot partly on the streets of Montmartre, and one crucial scene, the murder scene, takes place indirectly on the streets of Montmartre as a um, street singer with a little band, is singing in the streets below the apartment where Maurice is killing Lulu, his um, his lover. Now, the story is pretty much the same as uh, Scarlet Street, but with a few twists. Uh, first off, the characters are set in France, of course. It's set um, around the same time, early 1930s, so it's very much contemporary with the time that Scarlet Street is set. And it's the story of uh, Maurice, who's got a shrewish wife, whose husband was a World War One hero who died. He um, gives her all his money, gets very little, and he paints on the side. He he's, um, dabbles in art the same way that Criss Cross does in Scarlet Street. He is out on the street um, and sees um, Lulu in an altercation with her pimp, who, in this case, is a very interesting actor, a guy called Georges Flamand, who was also went on to have a long career as an actor. He was in um, Truffaut's 400 Blows, among other things. And indeed, Michel Simon, who plays Maurice, went on to have a long career. He, of course, was the main character in Borussia from Drowning and was also in The Train, that Burt Lancaster movie in the 1960s. He played one of the characters in that. Very long career and a very fine character actor. He started out as an acrobat and uh, later went on. He has a, a very wonderfully French ugly face, uh, Michel Simon. And in this, he um, his Maurice finds Lulu um, after who's on the street and having been slapped around by Dede, her lover played by um, Georges Flamont. Now, Georges Flamont started out as a street criminal in Paris. At the time this movie was made, he was only like a part-time amateur actor. But for the most part, he was a pimp and um, uh, uh, not, or a mech as they were called, uh, and a very unsavory character. He's got a slight Valentino look about him in this film. And he's got that kind of street hustler way about him, which really gives an authenticity to the scenes, particularly the ones where he's talking to another pimp friend of his. They play cards in a little um, estaminet in Paris uh, there's there's a, a gritty realism to this film which Scarlet Street singularly lacks there are some really interesting little street details which fascinated me there's a scene where there's a jukebox kind of thing in one of the cafes except it's not a jukebox in the sense that we know it. what it is is a like a giant mechanical music box mounted on the wall of the cafe and it does that kind of tinny music box kind of music to it so that was interesting for me the um the kind of a lot of it was location shots so the streets of paris were interesting and um some of it was shot in cafes as well and, and just the kind of technologies and the 
and the cutlery and the glasses and the, the bottles and all of that kind of stuff were really interesting details there. Now, the movie starts out in a very funky way. It starts out like a Punch and Judy show with the little hand puppets telling us that this is a, not a moral story, this is an amoral story, the, the characters are both good and bad, and they're not to be judged as such. It, it kind of establishes the scene through a proscenium arch of a puppet show. And right up front, uh, Renoir tells us not to take this seriously. And one of the things about this that differentiates it very much from Scarlet Street is there is a wry humour. It's a tragic comedy almost, in a sense. There's a very wry humour running through this film. And even though uh, Maurice and Lulu and Dede are, in a sense, amoral or immoral characters, um, we do kind of get to know them very well and particularly Morris we like as a character um, the plot plays out pretty much the same as Scarlet Street except for a couple of details now I've got myself a little word document here which outlines things that are different now in La Chien, Lulu is explicitly a prostitute she's not like a, a girl down on her luck the way that Kitty is played in Scarlet Street and Dede is very, very explicitly her pimp. He talks about um, her and about other girls he has when he's talking with his mate. So that kind of role in the demi-mall is very well established in this film and it's told in a way that's not judgmental of them. It's just a fact of life. Now, one of the other things is Morris is in a loveless marriage with his wife Adele, played in this case by Magdalene Beirube, um, who's a very short, very thin woman. She plays, she's very much a totally different physical type to Rosalind Ivan in um, Scarlet Street. Uh, and her husband was a World War I hero rather than a, a ostensibly dead cop. And um, the other layering that makes Lushian a much more interesting film than Scarlet Street is that uh, social structure in Paris, the music boxes and the cafes, the cafe culture, street singers, pimps, art dealers. There's some interesting scenes uh, that take place in um, a party run by the art dealers where it shows the different kinds of people. And one of the um, things mentioned is the fact that artists don't dress very well at all. And they've got female artists there wearing basically sweatshirts. And uh, uh, you get the rich people in their kind of dinner suits mingling with the artists who are very much dressed down and, and that kind of attention to detail as it was at the time. And of course, Jean Renoir being being the son of um, Pierre-Auguste Renoir um, knew the art world very, very well. And of course, that um, was used to great effect in this film. And I like, I liked this again, this is a nice thing about seeing movies of this period. The way people are dressed is of endless fascination to me. Uh, they never quite get it right when they do it in modern times. Uh, they do get it right to a certain extent, but it doesn't have that first-generation authenticity that um, a film made in the 1930s, about the 1930s, has. And I kind of like that, though. There's that um, mise-en-scene is really, really uh, of increasing importance to me. I just love those background details. And um, Maurice, the character, is, is played very differently than Chris Cross. Um, and and the two different physical types, too. Uh, Michel Simon was big, shambling kind of guy, um, hunched over but tall with an enormous head. And Edward G. Robinson was a much smaller guy with a uh, kind of frog mouth. And you know what he looks like, but he, 
they're two diff- totally different physical types and it, that makes it, it funnier too when um, Michel Simon is being um, harangued by his wife Adele and she's a tiny little woman he's this big hulking kind of guy it, it adds a kind of comic aspect to their relationship and she's a much more subtle and nuanced shrew than um, Rosalind Ivan was allowed to play in uh, Scarlet Street. There's a a subtlety about her, and um, she's not quite as loud, but she's more intensely dismissive of his passions. When he mentions a painting as his passion, she's dismissive of that because he's a not very passionate husband. Nothing like her poor dead ex-husband, who, of course, turns up alive, indeed, as happened in Scarlet Street. And there's a lot more comedy to the relationship between the ostensibly dead ex-husband and Maurice, and, of course, Adele. Um, the the trickery involved there is quite um, interesting, and the reveal of the um, of the continued life of the ex-husband is done in a much funnier way than it was in Scarlet Street. And with that kind of French acceptance of life as it is, an acceptance of fate, makes it a lot more fun there. Now, one of the things about this film that I found most interesting, and it's in the background of the film, and I found it out by looking it up in Wikipedia and then cross-referencing in um, other sources, and this is just totally over the top and totally crazy from what I can understand. Now, one of the things is the genre why was a manipulative fuck when it came to being a director. So, in the film, of course, um, Michelle Simon falls in love with um, Lulu, who I haven't mentioned is played by an actor called Jenny Marese. But Michelle Simon fell in love with the actress off-screen as well. Now, I'm going to read this as it is on Wikipedia, because it pretty much says it succinctly. Marese fell in love with Georges Flamand, who plays the pimp, Dede. Renoir and producer Pierre Bromberger had encouraged the relationship between Flamont and Marese in order to get the fullest conviction from the performances. Flamont was a professional criminal but an amateur actor. After the film had been completed, Flamont, who could barely drive, took Marese for a drive, crashed the car and she was killed. At the funeral, Michel Simon fainted and had to be supported as he walked past the grave. He was in love with her. He then threatened Jean Renoir with a gun, saying that the death of Marese was all his fault. And... Renoir, being Jean Renoir, said, kill me if you like, but I made the film. Of course, he didn't kill him, but um, it does go to show that the background story of this film, with the relationships, the main character falling in love with the girl, who is actually in love with a pimp, played out in real life as well, and then had a tragic consequence when the pimp crashed the car and killed the girl. But that's just crazy stuff but art imitating life imitating art um when marisa was died and she was considered an up-and-coming actress very much um the georges flamont was vilified in the in the popular press they called him an assassin and his career got really damaged for a number of years before that but he did come back in the 1950s in the early 50s and mid 50s late 50s when he did 400 blows his career as an actor did pick up again but he was vilified at the time for not being able to drive, crashing the car and killing an up-and-coming and and quite well-regarded French actress. 
So there's not too much else to say about last year, and you should see it. It's out on DVD. There's a number of different DVD versions out there, and it's worth having a copy of, as indeed is any other genre noir film you care to name. Um, I, I love his stuff, and the fact that his movie was remade not as well by somebody like Fritz Lang is kind of mind-blowing to me. I like a lot of Fritz Lang stuff, but I have this cruel hatred of the production code for what it did to American cinema. And the hoops it made creative people with adult sensibilities jump through in order to get their movies made um, really is disgusting to me and, and pisses me off enormously. But the two movies are great to compare and contrast and I think they're both worth seeing. Um, I probably have de- you know, denigrated Scarlet Street more than I, I would have had I not seen La Chienne. But seeing La Chienne, I could see what could have been done with this film. And unfortunately, that wasn't able to be done. But anyway, I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you for listening. I really enjoyed this one because it had all these little historic details that I love to pull out of the history and um, and kind of go over. It's got pimps, it's got murder, it's got passion, romance and art. How can you not fucking love it? But anyway, uh, thank you for listening. And again, please um, send feedback to cultguru at gmail.com. Flick me a note on Facebook. Go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Support the podcast with a micropayment via Patreon at patreon.com slash Paleo Cinema, and then I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast next week with a Martian Drive-In podcast. So, look after yourselves. Be cool. Uh, be nice to each other. If you're down here in the Southern Hemisphere, enjoy this warm weather. It's not going to last. If you're up in the Northern Hemisphere, stay warm. And as usual, the credits in the style of movie credits for the people who support the podcast via Patreon. Take care of yourselves, and I'll be back soon. And here are the credits for the Patreon subscribers to the podcast in the style of movie credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Armin the Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, the New York unit director, and Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. We also have Paul, who does the special makeup effects, and Kathleen, who has yet to have a job in the credits. And Eric, of course, is the set security lead. So thank you to everybody who supports the podcast and to the people who listen to it. If you want to support the podcast with some micropayments, please go to patreon.com slash paleocinema, and I'll catch all of you next time.